From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Alaska is a dangerous place. Many things can kill you here. Vicious predators, extreme temperatures, treacherous terrain, raging rivers, violent storms, and the churning ocean describe a few of the challenges facing humans in the 49th state. Wilderness dangers did not worry Shirley Kuntz, though. She'd spent most of her adult life in the Alaska wilderness, and along with her husband, she'd raised her six kids on a 160-acre homestead. Shirley knew how to survive in the Alaska wilderness. But when circumstances forced her to move to Fairbanks, Shirley lost her footing. She didn't fear wild animals, but she was wary of humans. And unfortunately, her instincts proved correct. Not long after moving into her double-wide trailer on the edge of Fairbanks, a monster entered her home and stabbed her 26 times. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. What causes so many teenagers and young adults to resort to committing senseless murders? According to recent neuroscience research, the prefrontal cortex in the brain controls a human's ability to stop and think before acting. It allows a person to contemplate the risks and consequences of his planned actions and consider other options. In a teenager's brain, the amygdala, the emotional part of the brain, is still not fully connected to the prefrontal cortex, the brain's decision-making center. In some individuals, this section of the brain does not fully develop until age 25. This research, of course, does not provide an excuse for murder, but perhaps it helps us better understand the problem. This episode covers the first part of a two-part story about two young, violent Fairbanks murderers and what happened when they met in prison. Shirley Kuntz, her husband, and six children lived comfortably in the home they built on their homestead outside of Fairbanks. But when a fire burned down their home, the family moved to Fairbanks, and Shirley and her husband separated. He moved to Anchorage with their youngest child, and Shirley struggled to adjust to life in a city. She moved in with her daughter and son-in-law, Sean and Dave Derrimer, who lived at six and three-quarter mile Chena Hot Springs Road on the outskirts of Fairbanks. Shirley had not lived alone since before she married, so she decided to move into a nice double-wide trailer that sat only 100 yards away from her daughter's home. 
A trail ran between her daughter's house and her trailer, but Shirley was nervous about living independently. She purchased a gun and had several security features installed in her trailer. Shirley had only recently moved into her trailer when she returned home alone shortly before midnight following a church social on Saturday, June 11, 1988. On Sunday, June 12th, Shirley's daughter and son-in-law, Dave and Sean, drove to the trailer to give Shirley a ride to church. When Shirley wasn't there waiting for them, Dave sensed something was wrong. He told Sean to stay in the car while he looked for her mother. Shirley was not inside the trailer, but Dave found her behind the home, sprawled on the ground where someone had sexually assaulted her and stabbed her to death. The Derrimers called the Alaska State Troopers, and Trooper James McCann headed up the investigation into the murder of Shirley Coons. At first, the killing stumped the troopers. By all accounts, Shirley Coons had no enemies. She was a sweet, devout woman who was well-liked in the community. She was also not wealthy, so why would someone choose to rob her? Friends remembered Shirley as a kind, loving person who enjoyed painting. She was a devout member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and she was active in her church. One friend described Shirley as friendly and loving. The troopers reached out to residents and neighbors on China Hot Springs Road. They asked if they saw any unknown vehicles or suspicious individuals in the vicinity before the time of the murder but they received few tips. Trooper McCann said, There's only one person who knows what happened, and that's the one we're after. On June 24, 1988, McCann said the trooper still did not have a suspect in the slaying of Shirley Kuntz, and he appealed to the public for information about the killer. Less than one week later, on June 30th, the grand jury indicted Christopher M. Marcy, 23, and charged him with first-degree murder, first-degree sexual assault, and first-degree burglary. Marcy was already a convicted felon who police had previously arrested six times on charges ranging from driving while intoxicated to assault. Marcy had recently spent three years in jail, and he was last released on May 9th a month before someone murdered Shirley Coons. After his indictment in the Coons case, the judge ordered Marcy held on $150,000 bail. The trial for the murder of Shirley Coons began on November 29, 1988 and the public finally heard the details about the horrific last moments of Shirley Kuntz's life. In his opening statement, District Attorney Harry Davis told the jury that Shirley fought hard for her life. After she returned home from the church social, Shirley got ready for bed. It was a warm evening, so she opened her bedroom window, crawled into bed, and fell asleep. According to Prosecutor Davis, not long after Shirley went to sleep, Christopher Marcy climbed into her bedroom window and attacked her. Shirley jumped from her bed and ran toward the back door in her nightgown and bare feet. 
Since there were no steps by the trailer's rear door, Shirley jumped three feet to the ground and sprinted toward the trail leading to her daughter's house. Marcy followed her, gripping his pocket knife in his hand. He stopped Shirley by punching her in the face, striking her hard enough to knock out her dentures. When she fell to the ground, he stabbed her 26 times with his pocket knife and then raped her as she lay dying. Davis said he had a strong case against Marcy with both direct forensic and circumstantial evidence. Shoe prints left at the scene, both inside and outside of Shirley's trailer, indicated the killer was wearing size 9 Reebok tennis shoes at the time of the murder. When Jim McCann and his fellow troopers studied the list of people who lived in the vicinity of Shirley's trailer, Christopher Marcy, a felon with a history of assault and burglary, jumped to the top of their list. Marcy resided with his parents only two miles from Shirley's trailer. When McCann visited Marcy's house to question him, the trooper noted shoe prints outside the home. The prints appeared to match those at the crime scene. When asked, Marcy provided a weak alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murder. Six days after the murder of Shirley Kuntz, troopers arrested Marcy for driving under the influence of alcohol. He was wearing size 9 Reebok tennis shoes at the time of his arrest, so the investigators measured and photographed the shoes. Soon after his release from jail, Marcy disposed of the tennis shoes. The prosecutor told the jury that the troopers found semen on Shirley Kuntz and long, wavy hairs clutched in her hands. He said he would put expert witnesses on the stand who would testify that the semen and the hair belonged to Marcy. Christopher Marcy had shoulder-length, wavy, dark hair. According to the prosecutor, Marcy's friend, Frank Heffel, would present some of the most incriminating evidence against Marcy. Heffel claimed Marcy called him soon after he murdered Shirley Kuntz and told him about the murder. According to Heffel, Marcy said, I just killed an old woman. I stabbed her over and over again. Heffel told his girlfriend about Marcy's confession. The girlfriend told her mother, and her mother told a friend who called Crime Stoppers. The tip cemented Trooper McCann's suspicions about Christopher Marcy. Because Marcy's statement to his friend included information the troopers had not released to the public. No one but the killer would know that Shirley Kuntz had suffered multiple stab wounds. After the prosecution finished its detailed, organized opening statement, the defense attorney surprised many court watchers by deferring to present his opening statement until after the prosecution's case. Let me take a short break. I want you to listen to the promo for With Nothing to Say, a podcast aimed at all of us movie lovers. Hi, I'm Austin Lugo. I'm Andrew Harp. This is With Nothing to Say. And let's talk about movies. With over 3,000 films log, Andrew and I, best friends since middle school, have dedicated our lives to watching, making, and talking about movies. 
Each week, Andrew and I handpick a movie he's seen, I've seen, or neither of us have seen, and dive deep into anything and everything two wannabe cinephils could ever think of. From horror to dramedy, we do it all. So join us as we talk about everything movies, and maybe you too can become a bona fide cinephil. The prosecutor called Trooper McCann to the stand, and McCann reconstructed the crime scene for the jury and explained the significance of the size 9 shoe prints found inside and outside the trailer. He also showed photos taken two weeks after the murder, showing cuts on one of Marcy's hands. Marcy's friend testified that Marcy said he cut his hand while stabbing Coons. The prosecution presented the most damning evidence against Marcy on the final day of its case, just before handing it over to the defense. Superior Court Judge Jay Hodges allowed the prosecutor to play a tape of a conversation recorded between Trooper Jim McCann and Christopher Marcy. The tape was recorded eight days after the murder, and McCann said Marcy willingly talked to him. On the tape, Marcy said, I was getting ready to close the door when she woke up. She jumped out of bed. She said something or did something or I did something, but I stabbed her in the stomach. I don't think I stabbed her hard, Marcy continued, because she's following me. I'm going toward the back door, but I'm walking backward and watching her. She's still following me. She's saying, Chris? She knows who I am. She's saying, why? Shirley Coons knew Christopher Marcy because he was friends with one of her sons when they were kids. Marcy acted as if he didn't recognize Coons. In the otherwise silent courtroom, Marcy's voice continued on the tape recorder. I'm going out, he said. I opened up the back door. She goes out the back door, and then I lose it. I don't know what I'm doing. I see red in my eyes, like it's totally red. That's all I see. And then my eyes cleared. I can see her laying there. There's blood everywhere, and I'm standing above her. And then I ran. When McCann asked Marcy what he did with his knife and the bloody clothes, Marcy said he didn't remember. All I can see is her face, Marcy said. All I can see is her eyes. I can see her gray hair and her eyes, and her mouth when she says, Chris? Marcy claimed he did not remember raping Kuntz. He said, it had to be outside, because I don't remember doing it inside. But I don't know if she was alive. I don't know if she was dead. When the prosecution rested its case, Marcy's attorney, Charles Esau, shocked jurors when he declined to present an opening argument and announced that he would not call any witnesses for the defense. The judge did not allow the prosecution to introduce Marcy's past arrest record. In his closing argument, though, District Attorney Harry Davis told jurors that he believed he proved his case. Christopher Marcy was guilty of the murder of Shirley Kuntz beyond any reasonable doubt. Davis told the jurors that Marcy broke into Shirley Kuntz's trailer, chased her outside, stabbed her 26 times, and raped her. 
In his closing argument, Charles Esau tried to poke holes in the prosecution's case. He said Marcy lied when he confessed to the crime. Esau said Marcy knew who had killed Shirley Kuntz, but he was afraid of being labeled a snitch if he pointed the finger at the real murderer. The jury did not buy Esau's argument. It took only two and one-half hours for the jury to find Christopher Marcy guilty of first-degree murder, first-degree sexual assault, and first-degree burglary. At a later hearing, the judge sentenced Christopher Marcy to 139 years in prison. Before reading the sentence, the judge said, There's an absolute necessity to isolate Mr. Marcy from society. Citing Marcy's past criminal record, Judge Hodges said Marcy showed a lack of any possibility of rehabilitation. Marcy was incarcerated at the Maximum Security Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska. Perhaps the connections in Christopher Marcy's brain had not yet fully developed, but nothing excuses or explains his decision to break into Shirley Kuntz's trailer and assault and murder her. Shirley had finally decided to confront her fear of living alone. She made the bold choice to move into her own home, and soon her worst nightmare came true. In my next episode, I will tell you the story of Brian Parati. Like Christopher Marcy, Brian's brain seemed to be wired wrong. When Marcy and Parati met in a maximum security prison, they were a dangerous combination. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.